Well, hey, uh, this, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, a story that talks about who God is as our Father. Now, this story in Scripture is so important to me because I realized somewhere along the line, even though I'd read the story of what we call often the prodigal son, I read this story over and over. Um, it wasn't until I really dove into it, gosh, it's been a couple decades now, um, that it really changed my perception. Even though I'd read this story over and over, like I thought that, that God viewed me in a way that uh, was, he was very disappointed in me, that he was very irritating, irritated because I couldn't get it right. Um, my perception of how God was toward me was that his posture or his position was kind of maybe even aloof or withdrawn or when I would screw up or mess up or blow it, he was, of course he wasn't surprised and of course he was expecting it and I kind of pictured him as sort of being apart from me. But when I began to, and this is the story really, that, that changed my perception of who God is as my father and that there's this unconditional love that God has for each one of us. I mean, there's a point in the story that we'll read here that, that I was, wait, 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 wait a minute, God's not mad? God's not mad at us? Like maybe God's even in a good mood? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the truth of who God our Father is. And, and I think we have to continue to bring our hearts back to this to remember um, that the unconditional love of God means, one of the things it means is that he's not angry with us. He's not put off. He's not irritated. He has plenty of time for his kids. That's the kind of father that he is. And don't we all really want that from God? Don't we all wish that we could be more confident in who God is and how he acts or what his posture is towards us? Because we wonder, right? What kind of God is God anyway? <laughs> what kind of God is God really? Is he stoic? Is he reserved? Is he angry? We wonder, is he just disappointed all the time? Is he maybe even just too busy? It's a question that I know lots of us have and even come back to when we think we've dialed it in, like me. I think I really am in touch with the Father heart of God, and then after time, I have to be reminded again. And so this morning, I want to talk about the Father heart of God, and to do so, like I said, I want to take us to what is my favorite story in Scripture, Luke chapter 15. Um, and even though it's called by many people the story of the prodigal son, it's actually a story about the father heart of God. And by the way, I've had just a really interesting week. Um, I had direction, I thought. I had been going on the next few messages, and I've been studying and writing and preparing like I always do. But then, last night, I had this really strong sense that I needed to um, put all that aside <laughs> And look at not even the whole prodigal son story, just a part of it this morning instead. And I don't know why that is. Um, and I kept coming back to, like, really? Am I? Really? Um, but I hope that it's going to be a significant morning for many of us, uh, especially if we've heard this story before, um, asking God to bring renewed light into this story and to remind us even of who he is, or maybe for the first time show us who he really is. Because the story of the prodigal son is not primarily about the prodigal. It's about the father's heart. That's the kind of father that you have. Let's read Luke 15, 
starting in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in wild living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out to the field to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him and and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, this is such an amazing story. It actually goes on, and you can read on this week. Because remember, it's a story of father and two sons. And if you read on, you'll discover that the older son, the one who stayed home and obeyed all the rules, uh, he's a real angsty guy. Uh, We might get to that in an upcoming week. Uh, We'll just see what stirs in our listening prayer tonight and see how that directs our preaching plan. So we may or may not get to that uh, in one of our upcoming weeks. But this morning, I just want to walk through even part of what I read there. And and as we often do here, I want to look at this story from the perspective that the people hearing Jesus tell this story originally, first century Jewish folks, how did they hear him tell this story? I mean, keep in mind, uh, they have a whole different culture. They have a different mindset. They think differently than we would today. They have a whole different worldview. Plus, it's, you know, 2,000 years ago. So some of the stuff that we can really quickly just blow right past, um, I want to pause and just look at and hope that it deepens our understanding. And in doing so, I hope that it gives us a deeper picture of the father heart of God towards us. And, and, and as we get rolling here, I know that many of you have heard this story a million times. Some of you have heard it from me multiple times, um, but will you, will you this morning, will you open your hearts to what God might say to you through it again. Now, to start with, the whole idea here, um, some of you may know that the idea of a father um, would have been a, God as a father would have been a foreign concept to the Jewish people. Um, They just didn't talk about God that way. Like today, we're just used to it. We're like, oh yeah, God's the father. We just kind of assume or we say it, whether we even think about it or not. It's pretty common for us to go, oh yeah, God is the father and we're the children and right. But, but um, years ago, 
um, a, a German scholar was doing research on New Testament literature, and, and he decided to do this research and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism, not just the Old Testament, but all the Old Testament books that we call the Old Testament, plus all the existing, uh, what we would call extra-biblical Jewish writings, um, dating from all through their history up until the 10th century AD. So that whole wide swath of Jewish um, literature, in all that time, there is not a single reference to a Jewish person ever addressing God directly in the first person as father, ever, ever. Not just the Old Testament, but in all the other literature around it and after it. Never did they say God was father. Um, the first rabbi, the first Jewish teacher to call God father directly was Jesus of Nazareth. And what's really cool too is that if you just read a little bit more of the gospels, um, Jesus actually taught us as well to call God father too. Like in the Lord's prayer where we pray our father, right? Our father, not just Jesus' father, but our father. 189 times in the four Gospels alone, Jesus referred to God as Father. 189 times. He just didn't kind of drop it in there. He did it frequently. And the number one image of God that Jesus paints for us again and again and again is God as our Father. And so Jesus tells us that, that we come to God as a Father and, and he's the kind of father that's not like, you know, may, maybe, may, maybe many earthly fathers sometimes are. Because, by the way, um, no earthly dad is perfect. And as you know, many earthly dads can actually be quite harmful. But no matter if you had a father who was great or a absent father or a destructive father, no matter your earthly father kind of image... Um, God wants to redeem all the images of these broken earthly fathers that got imprinted on us. See, he's a father God whose heart for you is good. His posture towards you is not annoyance. It is unconditional love always. So now Jesus tells this story here. This is father and two sons and you know, as we read, apparently the younger son is unhappy with the life he's living. And at some point in his dissatisfaction with the life he had, he comes to his dad and says, I want to have my inheritance and leave home right now. Now, it's important that we understand what this request actually means. Now, today, you know, if we just read it with our eyes, we might be tempted to think, oh, yeah, this is just a, this is just a young kid. He's trying to launch out on his own. But this story is not the story of a young man who is out to, you know, appropriately assert his independence and explore the world. It's not that kind of story. Ken Bailey was a missionary, and uh, he's a New Testament scholar. He lived in the Middle East for 40 years. He writes incredible stuff about the parables, some great books. This is what he writes about this story. He says, for 15 years, I have been asking people from all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implication of a son's request for his inheritance while his father's still living. Again, even, you know, like in our culture today, it'd be one thing, you know, to go to your parents and say, hey, when you die, what do I get in the will? 
That would be tacky, at least in our family, I think. Anybody else? Would that be tacky, maybe? Any parents want to be like, yeah, okay. Um, that, that'd be one thing. And then it'd be a different thing, even today, to go, and can I just have it right now, okay? <laughs> um, even more severe over there, Bailey says, uh, for 15 years, I've been asking people this question. The answer's almost always been the same. He would ask, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? And they say, <laughs> Never. <laughs> Well, could anyone ever make such a request? They tell him, impossible. He presses a little more and says, if anyone ever did, what would happen? And they answer, well, his father would, would beat him, of course. Right? And then he asks, oh, okay, so why? And here's why. This request means he wants the father to die. He wants his father dead. That's what this request means. So the son comes to his father here in the story and says, I want to get what's coming to me when you die, but I don't want to wait that long to get it. I want to live as if you were dead right now. That's how I want to live. See, friends, to choose sin, to choose to, in the metaphor of this story, live in a distant country is, in effect, to say to the Father, I wish to live as if you were dead, as if you had no claim on me or my life. And, you know, I could, you know, and have gotten all indignant, you know, when I read this disrespectful younger son. I can get real, you know, uptight and judgy until, until I think about how I've done this and that I still do this from time to time. That there are times in my life when I get stubborn still and want to live like I'm fatherless, like it's all up to me. I wander off. I stop trusting my father God. And when I do that, I too have chosen to live in a distant country. That's where I find myself. Now, in some ways, the most kind of mind-blowing part of this story, especially for the people in that culture, is the next sentence, what happens next, right? So the son says to his father this insulting thing, I want my inheritance, I want to leave. And then the father does not do what all of Jesus' listeners would be expecting any normal father to do. The father doesn't beat his son. The father doesn't banish his son. The father actually takes what's rightfully his, what belongs to the father, what's going to sustain him in his old age. He takes it and freely gives gives it to his son. And to Jesus' listeners, they're hearing this story, and this is like crazy on top of unbelievably crazy, right? They're like, come on, Jesus, you're from here, right? You know that not only does the father not have to do this, no normal father, no sane father would ever do such a thing. I mean, first of all, you'd never hear of a, a kid making this kind of disrespectful request, but then you would never dream of a father responding this way. The father, the father allows the son to take it and leave, which is what's just amazing in this story. It's part of one of the most amazing parts of this story. And it would have blown the minds of the people listening to Jesus tell this story because here, the father does what no other father had ever done. Here, we begin to hear about a love of another kind. We discover a love of another kind. 
Here's a God, a father, Jesus is telling us about. And Jesus is saying that he gives freedom to his children, you and me, even when that freedom is going to cause him immense pain because he deeply longs to be in a love relationship with free children. And so God gives us freedom to choose. To choose. Like, he doesn't make us into robots, right? He doesn't go, ah, nope, you got to do that. That, it's your only choice. You've got to obey. You've got to follow. No, he gives us the freedom to choose. He doesn't make us into robots. And contrary to what some people might try to say or believe, God's not trying to control you. He's not trying to control you. That's not his goal, to control you. Um, you know, sometimes people ask the question, well, you know, you look at the mess that we've made of our world. Why, why did God do it that way? Why did he do that way? Like, like, why didn't he just make it impossible for us to sin? Like, there wasn't even a choice for us to sin or disobey. And I think that one of the reasons God gave us a choice is that if we don't have a choice, then is it really love? No. Like, if I don't have a choice, it's not really love. I have to choose to love or not to love. I have to choose to say Yes or no, because if I only have one choice, then it isn't a choice. It isn't actually love. We were made for love, friends. And for it to actually be love, a love must be chosen for it to actually fit as love. And, you know, it's just mind-blowing for me to think about this, right? He's God. He's powerful but he makes himself vulnerable to us. And he does it because he wants relationship. He's not just after compliance. You know, as a parent, sometimes I would settle for compliance, right? (laughs) But God, the kind of father he is, he wants relationship, not just compliance. And so we get to choose, don't we? And in our story here, the younger son makes a choice. He chooses. He defies his father, shows how ungrateful he is. He says, I want to live as if you were dead. And he moves to a distant country. And then the next step of his journey is inevitable. Look at verse 13. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, traveled to a distant country, and there squandered his property in wild living. He convinces himself, you know, okay, it's fine. This is fine. This is right. I can do what I'm going to do, right? It's okay to do this. What he does is he turns that temptation into action. He wastes very, very little time. It says just a few days, and bang, he is gone. He is out of there. I read a quote a number of years ago, and I cannot find who it's attributed to, so I should just attribute it to myself right now. I won't do that. Um, it's really interesting on this point here, and the quote was this. When, when you're moving into sin... You don't spend much time thinking or reflecting over it, right? True for anyone besides me, yeah. And then this line, sin is always in a hurry because it knows that it's based on a lie. Like, I found it to be so true just reflecting on my own life. When temptation comes whether it's a temptation to take an ethical shortcut or tell a lie or to give in to anger or lust or rage, whether the temptation is to say an unkind word or to gossip or to paint someone in a bad light who hurt me or to complain about another person to someone else rather than the person that I'm upset with. Whenever I get tempted with that stuff, 
I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or reflecting, right? Because sin is always in a hurry. It's always in a hurry, right? Oh, and so many times I just, especially after I've blown it, I stop and I think, oh, if I just slow down, I might spare myself. I might spare the pain that my actions, my, I'll call it what it is, sin, <laughs> um, I might spare them, but sin is always in a hurry because it knows that it's based on a lie. Now, the son, after he had, you know, gotten his inheritance, he knew he was going to reject it by the whole community for what he does, so there you go. A few days later, it says, he takes it all, travels to a distant country, wastes his money. Look what happens next, verse 14, when he spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. Now, this point in the story here, I think, is very familiar, because on each of our life's journeys at one time or another, we come to a crossroad of, of pain. Especially if we live in a distant country for long enough, friends, sooner or later, we are going to hit pain. And the son here, he's in pain, he's alone, he's desperate, he has no hope. And the question when we get to that place, that crossroad is, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What's he going to do when he hits the wall? How's he going to respond to pain? And again, this is a major crossroad in our spiritual and life journey as well. What will we do when we encounter pain? See, the young man here, he hits a wall of pain, and here's something that's brand new for him. He no longer has the means to avoid facing his pain, right? No more money. No more parties, no more distractions. In order to survive, it says he's going to have to take care of pigs. Now again, rewind into the mind of a first century Jewish person that Jesus is telling the story to, and they all would be repulsed. Like pigs were unclean animals, not just, you know, because they wallow in mud, but they were unclean ritually and religiously as well. And to eat them was forbidden to any devout Jewish person, and so to be a pig herder, um, which was a despised job that would it would bring shame on him if anybody knew about it back home. That's that's his last option. That's where he's come to. And, and just even in this moment, like you snapshot the moment of him taking care of pigs. Like how crazy is this, right? The son rejects the father that loves him. And eventually, not too long later, he has to attach himself, hire himself out to another person. But this person that he's now attached himself to isn't even feeding him. The text says nobody was feeding him. Now, how this likely happened, because Middle Eastern cultures are really big on hospitality. It's a huge deal. It's really an obligation for those folks. So if someone asks you for help, you are pretty much on the hook to pony up. And so the polite way in a Middle Eastern culture to get rid of somebody who you didn't want around. They're an unwanted person, you don't want them around. You go, oh, sure, and you, you assign them a job that you know that they're probably not going to accept, right? Probably that's what happened here. The guy says, okay, kid, here's the deal. 
You can, uh, you can, be, a, uh, you can be a pig herder, <laughs> knowing full well that an Israelite wouldn't take that job. But this kid's so desperate, he takes it. And then in verse 17, in his pain, Jesus says, in his pain, he came to his senses. He finally acknowledged reality. He finally woke up. Now, pain will do that for a dude, right? (laughs) Happens to me all the time. And hear me. Listen, pain stinks. It's not fun. But pain can bring us to our senses, especially if we're kids that have wandered off. Now, I'll probably develop this in another message sometime soon, but sometimes things, we, we tend to think, well, God did this to me. God is punishing me. I'm, he's mad. Um, I screwed up, I sinned, and now look at the mess. Well, actually, probably what's going on when we blow it and when we live apart from the way God says, hey, walk in the light, do the things that I have like, instructed you to do because this is how life best works, not because I'm just wanting to make sure you obey me. When we go into those other areas and we do that stuff anyway, kind of the natural cause, the natural development is that we start to experience pain as a consequence of our actions. Not because God's going, okay, now I'm going to get you. It's just kind of how the universe is set up. God says, hey, do this or don't do that. And we go, well, whatever, I'll be fine. I can handle it. And we do that. And then life starts to feel painful. It's not because God's like out to get you. Life just unfolds that way because this is how God has wired the universe. It's how he wired the universe, pointing you to the good, and we go, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go do this, and we're going to run into pain. Now, sometimes that pain is like the prodigal son. It's from stuff that we've done, right? Stuff that we've done. Sometimes, though, the pain that we're facing, this crossroad of pain, is something somebody else did to us. Like, there's a whole bunch of reasons that we can come to this crossroad of pain. Maybe you know the pain of just feeling unfulfilled in your life and you're just dissatisfied with where things are at and it's grating on you. Um, Maybe the pain is that you're in an unfulfilling season of your marriage. Maybe even it just hurts really bad and you want to call it off. That's very painful. Um, Maybe... Your pain is that you're resentful, you're bitter towards the people around you. You wonder why you're so angry, why you hurt so bad. And maybe the pain is because someone else did something to you. There's arrows that have been thrown at you, pierced your heart, words that were spoken, wounds that you haven't been able to really acknowledge or face, betrayals from people closest to you. That's painful. Maybe, maybe you're in pain right now because there is guilt or sin that you've never really dealt with in your life. You've just kind of let it go and let it go or got tired trying to deal with it. Um, maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're lonely and so you're making choices that you know aren't right. You know it isn't what God has for you, but you're in pain and it's too hard to trust God with this stuff. So what do you do? 
And that little list, by the way, that I came up with was just kind of the quick list of just looking back at pain in different seasons of my life that I've had. Sometimes um, I've been at this crossroad of pain because of things that I did and sometimes because of things done to me. See, I've been betrayed at the deepest levels possible. I've gone through painful church situations. I've been lied about and lied to by people I trusted. I've had close friends abandon me. And I've failed over and over in many ways as a father, as a son. Um, I've gone through divorce. And again, this is just in the last decade of looking at my own story. So I just want you to know that I get it. I get it. I understand the crossroad of pain that we're looking at here. And those of you that have been through similar situations and other situations, you know the pain. Um, You know the pain of divorce, uh, the layers of stuff that you just have to keep sorting through. And if you're like me, eventually, eventually, no matter what's bringing that pain, eventually that anger, the blaming, the rage can subside at this crossroad. And the pain, if we will let it, the pain can actually lead us to face things that we might never have faced otherwise. And so for you... And for me, so for us, Hope Family, whatever pain it is that we're facing, there's a choice that's before us this morning. There's a choice. And I see in my own life and story and the life of people that I've walked with over many, many years, I see kind of two primary ways that I've approached pain or that we tend to approach pain. There's two roads or two paths, actually. Um, One road here. One way that I've often chosen, it's easy, it's wide, I'm really good at this road, I'm well practiced at it, one road, this is the road of avoidance. (laughs) Anybody else ever good with the road of avoidance? Yeah, okay, I'm not alone, good. The road of avoidance can look like this, and maybe after I read a few of these descriptors, some more of us will go, oh yeah, I've done that too. Um, The road of avoidance can look like we mask the pain, we just mask it, right? Uh, or, Or we distract ourselves by getting little momentary, you know, happiness fixes, You know, watch too much TV just to escape. We maybe go shopping and spend lots of money to distract ourselves. Some of us jump on the treadmill of work or even ministry and focus on achieving or serving as a way to not think about our pain. That's the avoidance, by the way. (laughs) And uh, I'm a recovering type A, okay, a recovering type triple A, right? So I get that whole, like, we're going to achieve, we're going to just go, 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 jump on that treadmill, get busy. That's a way to avoid, friends. We, we can get addicted to all kinds of activities, busyness as a way to numb our pain. Not to mention all kinds of chemical or other ways that we can avoid, and that's one way, that's one choice we have. That crossroad of pain... We can do the avoidance. I'm really good at all that stuff. I'm a well-versed professional when it comes to pain avoidance. That is one way. That avoidance road is there. Or or there is another way that we can choose. Another road. It's narrow. It's not well-traveled. One where we courageously face the pain in our life. We can acknowledge what's actually going on in our life and story and go, oh, I acknowledge that pain and that ultimately it's because of my sin or my stubbornness or I'm feeling this pain because of this inner emptiness inside of me or maybe it's just wounds that I have not been willing or able to address. 
So friends, we can avoid it or we can face it. The choice is ours. And in the story of the prodigal son, this young man faces the most severe pain he ever has. And it says, he comes to his senses. He, He wakes up. He faces the truth. And I don't think he would have done it without pain. And I'm looking at the clock, so that's where we're going to leave the story this week. Kind of a cliffhanger. You can read ahead if you want, Luke 15. <laughs> um, but again, I, just, I sensed last night that we just need to camp out right there. At least in part, because I do think that some of us, and I'm not looking at anyone in specifically in particular, I don't know anything, right? But I just had this sense as I prayed for our community that some of us need to consider this crossroad of pain. And I wonder if that's you today. Are you willing to trust Jesus to shine a light on it? Could we believe that the Father really is that good, that no matter what it is that we have to face, it's going to be okay. He's with us. We don't have to hide anymore. Can we trust when that light shines? Can we trust? Ooh, I look at that thing when the light shines on it. But can I trust that that's actually a gift? If Jesus is shining a light on something for you today, can you trust that it's a gift from God? 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses from there. We'll start in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. We've been talking about that over Christmas and last week. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him but yet walk in the darkness, according to John here, we lie. We don't live out the truth. Now, remember, pause here for a second before we read on. God's not mad. Don't read that and think God's mad. What does that mean? If God's not mad, if our Father isn't mad, I think it means that we're suffering our own consequences when we walk in the darkness. We've walked away from where God just shines a light and says, walk in this light. Like, see, life doesn't really work when we just go our own way apart from where God's talked about going for us. So when we mishandle our money, we walk away from the light that God shines we suffer those consequences. When we mishandle uh, our sexuality, we walk away from the light that God shines. Going to go our own way. We're going to encounter some pain. We mishandle power or relationships. We walk away from the light God shines. We walk in the darkness. We're not living out of the truth that's available to us. Now, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he, as God is in the light, we have... Good news, fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Like it can all be purified, but not by hiding in the dark. Not by going a different way and pretending that it's okay. I can handle this. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, I kind of read this verse and go, hey, if we act (laughs) like it's not a big deal, or we act like, no, there's no sin in my life, like, ah, right, who you fooling, right? 
We act like it's no big deal. It is. Some people would even, you know, be like, hey, there's grace for all that stuff. It doesn't matter what I do. That's not how grace works. That's not how grace works, friends. Grace is not the, mat- the, the mattress at the bottom of a cliff that you can just jump off and hope that it, you know, helps you survive. It's not grace. Claim to be without sin, verse 8 says. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And then some really good news. If we confess our sins, confess to say it out loud. Confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, we walk back into that light. That pain that we feel, we can step back into the light. And it's such a beautiful thing that we can walk in the light of Jesus. And we do that because we trust that God the Father is a good father. He's not mad. He's not punishing you. And again, we can get into that another time. But in the New Testament, there is no punishment towards the children of God. There is discipline, right? There's a difference, right? Uh, Punishment is to make you pay. Discipline is to help you learn. And God does not punish his children children anymore it's nowhere in the new testament that says he would punish us it does say he will help us learn right he's a good father you guys he's a good father and because he's a good father friends we can stop running stop performing we can face the pain avoid it or face it the choice is yours the choice is mine But I can tell you, friends, from experience that you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to deny or run or pretend or fake it or medicate it or hide it because there is a father who is waiting for you. He's not mad. He wants you to be free. So will you step into freedom today? Christy, will you come? I want us to spend the next couple of minutes here, just saying to God, whatever it is that you need to say to him. Maybe this morning as we just got to kind of this point in the prodigal son, heart of God story, um, maybe you recognize that you've taken some steps away from the father. Maybe there is a pattern of sin that's going on in your life and you see that you need to acknowledge it, to confess it right now, Put a stop to it before you move any further because these places are slippery. (laughs) And so that's why we do it now. We don't wait, we do it now. Or maybe you're seeing that there's some pain in your life, enormous guilt, tremendous hurt from what you've done or what was done to you. Either way, Jesus invites you to trust him enough, trust him enough with your pain to step into the light and to get real. Jesus, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for showing us the Father's heart for us. Thank you for your yes towards each of us. I ask your Holy Spirit to minister to each one here now. Your name.